You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of Volume 1 of Transforming the Soul, a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. It is Volume 58 in the Collected Works. This is translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem and revised for this edition by Pauline Werle. Lecture 1 is entitled The Mission of Spiritual Science, given in Berlin on the 14th of October, 1909. As I have done now for several years, I shall again be holding a series of lectures from the realm of spiritual science. Those of my audience who attended the previous ones will of course be quite clear about the sense in which I am using the term spiritual science. For those who have not attended these courses before, let me say that I shall not be presenting some kind of abstract science such as we find in ordinary books on psychology nor shall I be speaking from a point of view that uses the term spiritual science only for presenting the various areas of the history of civilization and culture. I shall be speaking about a science that treats the spirit as something actual, something real. This kind of science starts from the premise that human experience is not restricted solely to sense-perceptible reality or to the findings of human reason and other cognitive faculties, insofar as these are confined to sense perception. Spiritual science says that in addition to the knowledge human beings can acquire through their senses and intellect, they have the possibility of penetrating behind the realm of sense phenomena and of making observations that are not accessible to the compass of our intellect. This introductory lecture will describe the role of spiritual science in the lives of the people of today and will show how in the past this spiritual science, which is as old as human striving itself, appeared in a form very different from the form it must take today. In speaking, of the present, I naturally do not mean the immediate here and now, but the relatively long period during which spiritual life has had the particular character which has come to full development in our time. Anyone who looks back over the spiritual life of human humankind will see that a time of transition is a phrase to be used with care, for every period can be so described. Yet there are times when spiritual life takes a leap forward, so to speak. People living between the 16th and the 19th centuries and in our time have needed to relate differently in their soul and spiritual life to the world about them than humankind did in earlier times. And the further back we go in human evolution, the more noticeable it becomes that human beings had different longings different needs, and gave different answers from within themselves to questions concerning the great riddles of existence. We can gain a clear impression of transition periods such as these by acquainting ourselves with individual people who had retained certain qualities of feeling, knowing, and willing from earlier periods, but who nevertheless felt the urge to meet the demands of a new age. Such historic characters can be found in most of the epochs of human evolution. Today let us take an interesting personality and see what he makes of questions concerning the being of man and other such questions that most closely engage human minds. A personality who lived at the dawn of modern spiritual life and possessed the inner characteristics I have just described. I will not choose anyone well-known, 
but as we are just starting out on these lectures, a 17th century thinker who was unknown outside his small circle. In his time there were many such people who retained, as he did, medieval habits of thought and feeling, and wished to gain knowledge in the way that had been followed for centuries past, and yet were moving on toward the outlook of the coming age. I want to give you the name of an individual about whose external life nothing is known historically, so to say. Where spiritual scientific investigation is concerned, this is always very pleasing for anyone who wants to be thoroughly open-minded in the realm of spiritual science, will know how distracting it is to find attached to a personality all the petty details of everyday life that are collected by present-day biographers. On this account we ought to be grateful that history has preserved so little about Shakespeare, for instance. The true picture is not spoiled, as it is with Goethe by all the trivia the biographers are so fond of dragging in. I will designate for our purpose an individual of whom even less is known than is known about Shakespeare, a seventeenth-century thinker who nevertheless is of great significance for anyone who can see into the history of human thinking. In Francis Joseph Philipp, Count von Hoditz und Wolframitz, who led the life of a solitary thinker in Bohemia in the second half of the seventeenth century, we have a personality of outstanding importance from the point of view of the history of the development of thought. In a little book entitled Libellus de Hominis Conventiantia, sorry for my Latin pronunciation, I have not inquired if it has since been published in full. That was the reader's aside apologizing. End of reader's aside. Let me read that again. In a little book entitled Libel Libelus de Hominis Conventientia, I have not inquired if it has since been published in full, he set down the questions which occupied his mind. If we immerse ourselves in his life of soul, these questions can lead us into the issues that a reflecting mind would concern himself with in those days. This lonely thinker discusses the great central question of the being of man. With a forcefulness that springs from a deep need for knowledge, he says that nothing injures a human being more than not knowing what his actual being is. Count von Hoditz turns to important figures in the history of thought, for instance, to Aristotle in the 4th century B.C., and asks what Aristotle can tell us in answer to the question, what is really the essential being of man? He says that Aristotle's answer is that man is a rational animal. Then he turns to a more recent thinker, Descartes, and asks what he had to say to the question of the actual being of man. And the answer he received was, a human being is a thinking being. But on reflection, he had to admit that neither of these two representative thinkers can give him an answer to the important question of the being of man. For a real answer would tell him both what a human being is and what he ought to do. When Aristotle tells us that man is a rational animal, that is not an answer to the question of what a man is, for we cannot tell from his answer what the actual nature of rationality is. Nor does Descartes, the seventeenth-century thinker, tell us what man ought to do in accordance with his nature as a thinking being. For although we may know that man is a thinking being, we do not yet know what he should think in order to take hold of life in the right way, in order to relate his thought to life. So our philosopher sought in vain for an answer to this burning question, which has to be answered if a human being is not to become distorted in his whole being. Then he hit on something that will seem strange to modern readers, especially if they are given to scientific ways of thought, but for our solitary thinker it was the only answer appropriate to his particular soul constitution. It was no help to him 
to know that man is a rational animal or a thinking being. But now he had found his question answered by another thinker who had, who had it from an older tradition and he put it into the following words. Quote, the human being is in essence an image of the Godhead. Close quote. Today we should say that man in his essential being originates entirely from the spiritual world. We do not need to concern ourselves today with Count von Hoditz's further observations. The only thing of interest to us is that the needs of his soul drove him to an answer that went beyond anything we can perceive with our senses or comprehend with our reason. If we examine his book further, we find that he had no access to knowledge gained directly from the spiritual world. Now, if he had been troubled by the question of how the earth related to the sun, he could, even if he were not an observer himself, have found the answer somewhere among the wider field of observations opened up by modern natural science. With regard to external questions concerning the sense world, he could have used answers given by people who had themselves investigated the questions through their own observations and experiences. But the experiences available to him at that time gave him no answer to the questions concerning man's spiritual life, his real being insofar as it is spiritual. Clearly, he had no means of finding people who themselves had had experiences of their own in the spiritual world and so could communicate to him the properties of the spiritual world in the same way as the scientists could impart what they had found out in answer to their questions about the external world. So he turned to religious tradition and its records. He certainly assimilated his findings, and this characterizes his whole depth of soul. But we see from the way he worked that he was able to use his reason only to give a new form to what had emerged in the course of history or what it passed down to him from recorded tradition. Many a person will ask at this point, are there or can there be such people who from their own observation, from direct experience, are also able to answer questions related to the riddles of spiritual life? This is precisely what in modern times spiritual science will make people aware of once more. The fact that just as Research can be carried out in the sense-perceptible world. It is possible to carry out research in the spiritual world, where no physical eyes, no telescopes and microscopes are available. And that answers can be given from direct experience as to conditions in such a world beyond the range of sense experience. We shall then realize that there was an epoch conditioned by the whole evolutionary progress of humanity, when other means were used to make known the findings of spiritual research, and that we now have an epoch when such findings can once more be spoken of and understanding for them again be found. In between lay the twilight time of our solitary thinker, when human evolution took a rest from ascending toward the spiritual world, and people preferred to rely on traditions passed down through ancient records or by word of mouth. And in certain circles it began to be doubted whether it was even possible through their own powers by developing the cognitive faculties that lie hidden and slumbering within them to ascend at all to a spiritual world. Are there any, are there then, any rational grounds for saying that it is nonsensical to speak of such a spiritual world, of a world lying beyond the sense-perceptible. A glance at the progress of our ordinary science should be enough to justify this question. But precisely by considering impartially the course of this progress and the wonderful advances that have been made in unraveling the secrets of external nature, we should become aware that a higher supersensible knowledge must exist. How is that? If we study evolution impartially, we cannot fail to be impressed by the exceptional progress made in recent times
by the sciences concerning with concerned with the outer world. With what pride, and in a certain sense this pride is justified, do a lot of people remark that the vast, ever-increasing advance of modern science has brought to light many facts about the external sense world that were unknown a few centuries ago. For example, thousands of years ago the sun rose in the morning and passed across the heavens just as it does today. What people could see in the surroundings of the earth and in connection with the course of the sun was the same then, for external observation, as it was in the days of Galileo, Newton, Kepler, Copernicus, and so on. But what was the humanity of those days able to say about the external world? Can we maintain that the modern knowledge of which people of our time are so proud has been acquired by merely observing the external world? If the external world itself could, just as it is, give us the knowledge, there would be no need to reach beyond what it gave us. Centuries ago they would have known about the sense world all that we know today. Why is it that we know more and have a different view of the position of the sun and so on? It is because human understanding, the forces of cognition that we apply to the sense world, have changed and developed in the course of the centuries and millennia. Yes, these human faculties of cognition were by no means the same in ancient Greece as they have become since the 16th century and on into our time. Anyone who studies these changes without prejudice must say to himself, human beings have acquired something they did not have before. They have learned to see the outer world differently because with regard to the forces of cognition they apply to the sense world, there has been a further development. Therefore it became clear to them that the sun does not revolve around the earth, for their new cognitional faculties compelled them to think of the earth as going round the sun. In other words, in our time, human beings have other forces at their disposal than they had in earlier times. No one who is proud of the achievements of physical science and who studies progress impartially can have any doubts at all that human beings are capable of inner development, that we have more in us than natural forces, and that our powers have been remodeled from stage to stage until we have become what we are today. But we are called upon to develop more than outer powers. Human beings have in their inner life something which enables them, in the new light of their inner capacities, to bring the world to life once more in knowledge. In Goethe's book on Winckelmann, we find some of the finest words he ever uttered. Quote, if the healthy nature of man works as a unity, if he feels himself within the world as in a great, beautiful, noble, and worthy whole, if harmonious ease offers him a pure and free delight, then the universe, if it could become conscious of itself, would rise in exultation at having reached its goal and would stand in wonder at the climax of its own being and becoming. Close quote. And, again, quote, man, placed at the summit of nature, is again a whole new nature, which must in time achieve a summit of its own. He ascends toward that height when he permeates himself with all the perfections and virtues, summons forth order, selection, harmony and meaning, and attains in the end to the creation of a work of art. Human beings may possibly feel that they were born out of the forces they can see with their eyes and grasp with their reason. But if they apply the unbiased observation we have been talking about, then they will have to admit that in the light of this very science itself, it is not only external nature that has forces which develop until they are observed by human eyes, heard by human ears, and grasped by human reason. For a study of human evolution will show that something evolves within human beings. The faculties for gaining exact knowledge of nature, 
were at first asleep within them and have awakened and developed between those older times and now. But it is these newly acquired cognitional forces which have made possible the great progress of physical science. What we need to ask ourselves is this. Is it inevitable that these inner faculties should remain as they are now, equipped only to reflect the outer world? Is it not perfectly reasonable to ask whether the human soul may not possess further slumbering faculties that can be awakened? Is there not the possibility that human beings can apply their inner forces not only as a mirror of the external world? May it not be that if they developed further forces within themselves that were once slumbering within them, these might light up spiritually, so that their spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, as Goethe calls them, might be opened, enabling them to perceive a spiritual world behind the sense world. To anyone who follows this thought through without prejudice, it will not seem nonsensical that hidden forces should be developed to open the way to the supersensible world and to answer the questions, what is the real nature of human beings? If they are created in the image of the spiritual world, what then is this spiritual world? If we describe human beings in external terms and think of their gestures, instincts, and so forth, we shall find their characteristics represented in the outer world imperfectly in lower beings, and we shall conclude from their outer appearance that they are a compilation of instincts, gestures, and so on, which we find distributed among a number of lower creatures. We conclude this because we think of what we see as man as having developed from what we see in these other creatures. Might it not be possible, then, to use in a similar way the forces we could develop and penetrate into a spiritual external world and see beings, forces and objects just as we see stones, plants and animals in the physical world? Might it not be possible to observe spiritual happenings which would throw light on man's inner life just as it is possible to understand man's relationship to the things of the physical world? But that happened to be a time that was in between an old way and a new way of communicating spiritual science. It was a time of rest for the greater part of humankind. Nothing new was being discovered. The old sources and traditions were worked over again and again. That was absolutely the right thing for that period, for every period meets its needs in a characteristic way. So this interlude occurred, and we must realize that while it lasted, people were in a special position that was different from both before and after that time. In a sense, they became unaccustomed to looking for the soul's hidden faculties, which, if developed, could have led to seeing in the spiritual world. So a time drew on when human beings could no longer believe or understand that an inner development of hidden faculties would lead to supersensible knowledge. Even so, one fact could never be denied, that in human beings themselves there is something that cannot be perceived by physical senses. For how could it be thought that human reason, for example, is a visible entity? What sort of impartial thinking could fail to admit that human cognition is by its very nature a supersensible faculty. People never actually lost sight of this fact, even at the time when they had ceased believing that supersensible faculties within the soul could be developed so as to give access to the supersensible. One particular thinker reduced this faculty to the smallest limit. It was impossible, he said, for human beings to penetrate by any kind of supersensible vision into a world that is as real to us spiritually as are animals, plants, minerals, and physical human beings in the world of the senses. Yet even he had to recognize impartially that something supersensible does exist and can never be denied 
this thinker was Kant, who thus brought an earlier phase of human evolution to a certain conclusion. For what does he think about man's relationship to a supersensible spiritual world? He does not deny that human beings observe something supersensible when they look into themselves, and that they have to employ, for this purpose, faculties of knowledge which cannot be perceived by physical eyes, however clever they are in amplifying their physical instruments. Kant, then, does point to something supersensible. These very faculties of cognition themselves, which the soul makes use of to draft for itself a reflected image of the outer world. But he goes on to say that this is all that can be known about a supersensible world. His opinion is that wherever human beings may turn their gaze, they see only this one thing they can call supersensible, the supersensible element contained in their senses in order to perceive, grasp, and understand the existence of the sense world. Accordingly, in the Kantian philosophy, there is no path that can lead to observation or experience of the spiritual world. The one thing Kant admits is the possibility of recognizing that knowledge of the external world cannot be attained by the senses, but only by supersensible means. This is the sole experience of the supersensible world that human beings can have. And beyond this, there is no access, no glimpse, no experience. This is the world historical importance of Kant. But, in Kant's argument, it cannot be denied that when human beings use their thinking in connection with their actions and deeds, they find the means to affect the sense-perceptible world. Thus Kant had to recognize that human beings do not follow only instinctive impulses, as lower animals do. They also follow impulses from within their souls, which can raise them far above subservience to mere instinct. There are countless examples of people who are tempted by a seductive impulse to do something, but who resist the temptation and take as their guide to action something that cannot come from an external stimulus. We need only think of the great martyrs who gave up everything the sense world could offer for something that was to lead them beyond the sense world. Or, we need only point to the experience of conscience in the human soul, even in the Kantian sense. When people encountered something ever so attractive and tempting, conscience can tell them not to be lured by it, but to follow the voice that speaks to them from spiritual depths, an indomitable voice within their souls. It was certainly like that for Kant, that in a person's inner being there is such a voice, and that what it says cannot be compared with any message from the outer world. Kant called it, quote, the categorical imperative, close quote, a significant phrase. But he goes on to say that human beings can get no further than this voice from the soul as a means of being active in the sense world from out of the supersensible, for they cannot escape from the world of the senses. They feel that duty, the categorical imperative, and conscience speak from within them, yet they cannot penetrate into the realm from which they come. Kant's philosophy prohibits human beings from going any further than to the boundary of the supersensible world. Everything that is actually within these realms, from which come the voices of conscience, duty, and the categorical imperative is withdrawn from our observation, despite the fact that it is of the same supersensible nature as the soul. According to Kant, human beings cannot enter that realm. The most they can do is draw conclusions about it. They can tell themselves, duty calls, but I am a human being and I am weak. In the ordinary world, I cannot carry out fully the injunctions of duty and conscience. 
Therefore, I must just accept the fact that my being is not confined to the world of the senses, but has a significance beyond this world. I can hold this before me as a belief, but it is not possible for me to penetrate into the world from which moral consciousness, duty, conscience, and the categorical imperative speak to me. We will now turn to someone who in this context was the exact antithesis of Kant, no other than the poet and thinker Goethe. Anyone who truly compares the soul life of the two men will see that they are diametrically opposed in their attitudes toward the most important problems of knowledge. Goethe, after absorbing all that Kant had to say about these problems, maintained, on the ground of his own inner experience, that Kant was not right. Kant, said Goethe, claims that human beings have only an intellectual, conceptual power of judgment and not a pictorial faculty which could have experiences in the spiritual world. But Goethe continues, anyone who has exercised himself with the whole force of his personality to rest his way through the sense world to the supersensible, as I have done, will know that we are not restricted to drawing conclusions, but through a pictorial power of judgment we are actually able to raise ourselves into the spiritual world. Such was Goethe's personal reply to Kant. And he particularly emphasizes that anyone asserting the existence of this pictorial power of judgment is embarking on an adventure in the realm of reason. But he adds that in his own eyes he passed the adventure of reason with flying colors. Yet in the recognition of what Goethe calls pictorial judgment lies the inner principle, the very nerve of what we call real spiritual science, for it leads, as Goethe knew, into a spiritual world, and it can be developed, raised to ever higher levels, so as to lead to direct vision, to actual experience of that world. The fruits of this heightened vision are the content of true spiritual science. And what we shall be engaging ourselves in during these coming lectures will be the fruits of this science, which has its source in the development of hidden faculties in the human soul that enable human beings to see into a spiritual world, just as through the external instrument of the senses we are able to see into the realm of chemistry, physics, and so on. It could now be asked, does the possibility of developing hidden faculties that slumber in the soul belong only to our time or has it always existed? Looking at the course of human history from a spiritual scientific point of view informs us that there existed ancient treasures of wisdom, parts of which were condensed into those writings and traditions which survived during the intermediate period I described earlier. This same spiritual science also shows us that today it is again possible not merely to continue proclaiming the old wisdom, but to speak of what the human soul can itself achieve through developing the forces and faculties slumbering within it. So that a healthy judgment, even when human beings cannot themselves see into the spiritual world, can understand the findings of the spiritual researcher. The pictorial judgment that Goethe had in mind when he spoke out against Kant is in a certain sense the beginning of the upward path which is by no means unknown today. Spiritual science is therefore now reaching the position, as we shall see, where it can show that there are hidden faculties of knowledge which in ascending order penetrate ever further into the spiritual world. When we speak of knowledge, we generally mean knowledge of the ordinary world, the external world. But we can also speak of, quote, imaginative knowledge, close quote, used as a terminus technicus, just as the others are. Then, in quotes, inspired knowledge, and finally, of real, in quotes, intuitive knowledge. 
These are stages of the soul's progress into the supersensible world that are also experienced by each spiritual researcher in accordance with the constitution of the soul today. Similar paths were followed by spiritual researchers in times gone by. But spiritual research has no significance if it is to remain the possession of a few. It is not something that can address itself only to small circles. Certainly, anything an ordinary scientist has to say about the nature of plants or about processes in the animal world can be of service to all mankind. Even though this knowledge comes from the possession of a small circle of botanists, zoologists, and so on. But spiritual science is not like that. It has to do with things that concern the needs of every human soul, with questions related to the inmost joys and sorrows of the soul, with knowledge that enables human beings to endure their destiny and to do so in such a way that they experience inner satisfaction and bliss even if destiny brings them sorrow and suffering. If certain questions remain unanswered, people are left desolate and empty, and precisely they are the concern of spiritual science. The kind of questions spiritual science deals with are not the sort that can be brought only to restricted circles, They concern us all, at whatever stage of development and culture we may be. For the answering of them is the bread of life for each and every soul. This has always been so, at all times. And if spiritual science is to speak to humankind in this way, it must find the means of making itself understood by all who wish to understand it. This entails directing itself to those forces which just at this particular time are unfolding in human souls so that they can respond to what the spiritual researcher has to bring. Since human nature changes from epoch to epoch and new attitudes are constantly appearing in human souls, it is natural that in the past spiritual science should have spoken differently concerning the most burning questions of the soul than it does today. In remote antiquity, it spoke to a humanity which would not have understood the way it speaks today, for the soul forces which have now developed did not exist then. If spiritual science had been presented in the way appropriate for the present day, it would have been as though one were talking to plants. Therefore, in ancient times, the spiritual researcher had to use other means. And if we look back into remote antiquity, spiritual science itself tells us that in order to give answers in a form adapted to the soul forces of the humanity of those times, a different preparation was needed by those who were training to look into the spiritual world. They had to cultivate forces other than those needed for speaking to present-day humankind. The kind of people who develop the forces that slumber in the soul in order to look into the spiritual world and see spiritual beings there as we see stones, plants and animals in the physical world are and always have been called initiates by spiritual science. And the experiences the soul has to undergo in order to achieve this faculty is called initiation. But in the past, the way to it was different from what it is today, for the mission of spiritual science is always changing. The old initiation that had to be gone through by those who had to speak to the people in ancient times also led to a direct experience of the spiritual world. They could see into realms around them which are more exalted than those perceived by the senses. But they had to transform what they saw into symbolic pictures, so that people could understand it. Indeed, it was only in symbolic form that the old initiates could express what they had seen. But these symbols embraced everything of interest to human beings in the world. And it is symbols like these, drawn from real experience, that are preserved for us in the myths and legends from the most diverse peoples and periods.
In academic circles, these myths and legends are attributed to the popular imagination. Those who know the facts are aware that myths and legends have their origin in spiritual vision, and in every genuine myth and legend we have to see a visible picture of something a spiritual researcher has experienced, or, in Goethe's words, what he had seen with spiritual eyes or heard with spiritual ears. We come to understand legends and myths only when we take them as symbols expressing a real knowledge of the spiritual world. In those times, these very symbols were the way to speak to the widest circles of the people. It is a mistake to assume, as it so often is nowadays, that the human soul has always been just as it is in our century. The soul has changed. Its receptivity was quite different in the past. When people were given the symbolic picture in the myth, they were inwardly satisfied, for they were moved to see in the visible picture a much more immediate impression of the reality behind it. Today myths are regarded as fantasy, but when, in former times, the myth was received into human souls, secrets of human nature opened to them. And when people looked at the clouds, the sun, and so forth, they understood as a matter of course what the myth had told them. For a smaller number of people, the symbol brought them what we can call higher knowledge. While today we have to talk in a straightforward way, it would be impossible to express in our terms what the souls of the old sages or initiates received, for neither the initiates nor their hearers had the soul forces we have now developed. In those, earlier, in those early times, the only valid forms of expression were these symbols. These symbolic pictures are preserved in the kind of literature which strikes a modern reader as very strange. Now and then, especially if one is prompted by curiosity as well as by a desire for knowledge, one comes upon an old book containing extraordinary pictures that symbolize, for instance, the relationship of the planets, together with all sorts of geometric figures, geometrical figures, triangles, rectangles, and so on. Anyone who applies a modern intellect to these pictures, without having acquired a special feeling for them, will say, what does all this rubbish mean? What is the point in this symbolic figure of, in quotes, Solomon's key, these triangles, rectangles, and so on? The spiritual researcher will certainly agree that from the point of view of modern culture, a modern person can make nothing of it. But when these pictures were first given to students, something was really awakened in them. Today the human soul is different. In the age when we have to develop so as to be able to give modern answers to questions about nature and life, we cannot respond in the old way to such things as the interlocked triangles, the one pointing upward, the other downward. In former times this picture stirred something in people's souls, and they could see into something beyond it. Just as, nowadays, we can look through a microscope and see plant cells that cannot be seen without it, so did these symbolic figures serve as instruments for the soul. Those who held Solomon's key as a picture in their mind's eye could see into the spiritual world in a way that they could not have done without the picture. But our souls are not like that today. So the secrets of the spiritual world that are handed down in these old documents can no longer bring us knowledge in the way they once did. And those that give them out as knowledge today, or who did so as late as the 19th century, are doing something out of line with the facts. That is why one cannot do anything with writings such as those of Eliphas Levi, for in our time it is antiquated to present such symbols for throwing light on the spiritual world. In earlier times, however, it was the right thing to do for spiritual science, to speak to human souls either through the powerful pictures of myths and legends or in symbols of the kind I have just described. Then came the time 
when the human soul had to be addressed differently. This was the intermediate period, when knowledge of the spiritual world was handed down to the succeeding generations by means of documents or oral tradition. Even in outer life there is clear evidence of this. For instance, at the time when Christianity was in its beginnings, there was a certain sect in North America called the Therapeutae. Someone who had been initiated into their perceptions said that they possessed ancient documents that originated from their founders who could themselves still see into the spiritual world, whereas their followers could either only read these documents or hear from those who had themselves acquired vision in the spiritual world. This applies to ancient times. But if we pass on to the Middle Ages, we find certain outstanding individualities saying, we have certain cognitive faculties, we have reason. Then beyond this we have other faculties of cognition which can rise to a comprehension of certain secrets of existence. But there are other secrets, mysteries of existence which are only accessible to revelation, They are beyond the range of faculties we can develop. We look for them only in documents. Thus there arose, among the great minds of the Middle Ages, the significant split between those things that can be known by reason and those that must be believed because they are passed down by tradition and are revelations. And it was in keeping with the outlook of the times that the frontier between the two should be clearly marked. This was justified for that period, for people's soul constitutions were no longer such that certain mathematical signs could be used as symbols to call forth faculties of cognition. Until modern times, there was only one way for people to grasp the supersensible, by looking into their own souls, as, for instance, Augustine did to some extent. Human beings had now lost the possibility of seeing in the outer world anything that revealed to them deep inner secrets. Symbols had come to be regarded as mere fantasies. What remained to them was that the way the supersensible world was presented to them corresponded to the supersensible part of themselves. They understood that whereas their own thinking was restricted within time and space, In the spiritual world, there is a being who is pure thought. You have a limited capacity for love, while in the spiritual world there is a being who is perfect love. When the spiritual world was represented to people in terms of their own inner experience, their inner life could extend to a vision of nature permeated by the divine. Then they had consciousness of God, But for particular facts, they could get information only from ancient writings, for in themselves they no longer had anything that could lead them into the spiritual world. Then came modern times which brought the proud achievements of natural science. These are the times when faculties that could go beyond the sense perceptible emerged not only in those who achieved scientific knowledge, but in all people. Something in the soul came to understand that the picture given to the senses is not the real thing, but that truth and appearance contradict one another. This new faculty that is able to discern something more in outer nature than is presented to the senses will be understood more and more by those who today penetrate as researchers into the spiritual world and are then able to report that one can see there a spiritual world and spiritual beings, just as here we see the sense-perceptible world inhabited by animals, plants and minerals. The spiritual researcher is in fact speaking of realms that mean something to present-day understanding. And we shall see that the symbols that were once a means to gaining knowledge of the spiritual world have become an aid to spiritual development. For instance, Solomon's key, which once called forth in the soul real spiritual perception, does so no longer. But if today souls allow themselves to be acted upon 
by what the spiritual researcher can explain concerning this simple, something in the soul is aroused that can lead them by stages into the spiritual world. Then, when they have acquired vision of the spiritual world, they can tell other people about it in the same logical terms that apply to external science. Spiritual science or esotericism must therefore speak today in a way that can be grasped by anyone who has a broad enough understanding. Whatever spiritual researchers have to impart must be clothed in conceptual terms that are customary in other sciences, otherwise they would not be paying due regard to the needs of the times. Not everyone can straight away see into the spiritual world, but because the appropriate forces of reason and feeling exist now in every soul, spiritual science, if rightly presented, can be grasped with ordinary understanding by everyone. Spiritual researchers are once again in a position to present what our solitary thinker arrived at, quote, the human being is in essence an image of the Godhead, close, close quote. If we want to understand the physical nature of the human being, we look to the relative findings of physical research. If we want to understand our inner spiritual nature, we look to the realm which the spiritual researcher is able to investigate. We then discover that human existence does not begin only at birth or conception and end at death, but that apart from the physical part of their organism, Human beings also have supersensible members. If we understand the nature of these members, we penetrate into the realm we do not only believe in, but can know. And when Kant said at the end of his epoch that we can acknowledge the categorical imperative, but no one can penetrate with conscious vision into the realm of freedom, of divine being, and immortality, he was only expressing the experience characteristic of his time. A science of the spiritual will show that it is possible to penetrate into a spiritual world, that just as the eye equipped with a microscope can penetrate into realms beyond the range of the naked eye, so can the soul, equipped with the means of spiritual science, penetrate into an otherwise inaccessible spiritual world whose love, excuse me, where love Conscience, freedom, and immortality can be known, just as we know animals, plants, and minerals in the physical world. We will go further into this in subsequent lectures. If we now consider the relationship between the spiritual researcher and his public, and look once more at the difference between the past and present situation in regard to spiritual science, we can say, the symbolic pictures used by spiritual researchers in the past acted directly on the human soul because what we today call the faculties of reason and understanding were not yet present. The pictures had the effect of giving direct vision into the spiritual world without the people receiving them being able to test with their reason what the spiritual researcher gave them. The pictures acted with the force of suggestion, of inspiration, and the people subjected to them were carried away and unable to resist them. Anyone who was given a false picture was therefore at the mercy of those who gave it to him, for it had a direct effect. So in those early times, it was of the utmost importance that those who ascended into the spiritual world should be able to inspire complete faith and absolute confidence in their trustworthiness. For if they misused their power, they had in their hands an instrument that could exploit in the worst possible way. For this reason there are in the history of spiritual science, besides periods of glory, also periods of degeneration, times in which the power of untrustworthy initiates was misused. So, in those early times, it depended to a high degree on how the individual initiates behaved toward their pupils. Nowadays, and we may say, thank God for that, this has changed. However, since things do not alter all at once, 
It is still necessary today that the initiate should be a trustworthy person, and it will then be justified to feel every confidence in him. But people are already differently related to the spiritual researcher, for if he is to speak in accordance with the demands of his time, he must speak so that every unbiased mind can understand him, if the willingness to understand him is there. This is, of course, far removed from saying that everyone who could understand must now understand. But reason can now be the judge of what an individual can understand. And therefore, all those who devote themselves to spiritual science should apply their unbiased judgment to it. From now on, this will be the mission of spiritual science, to ascend through developing hidden powers into a spiritual world just as the physiologist, by means of the microscope, descends into a realm of microorganisms invisible to the naked eye. Ordinary human beings of reasoning will be able to test the findings of spiritual research as it can test the findings of physiologists, botanists, and so on. Ordinary common sense will be able to realize that it is all thoroughly consistent The person of today will come to the point of saying, My reason tells me that things can be like this. If I think reasonably about it, I can become convinced that what the spiritual researcher says is true. And this is how, for his part, the spiritual researcher should be speaking, if he is really aware of himself as part of today's spiritual scientific mission. But the present time will also have its period of transition, for since the means to achieve spiritual development are available and can be used wrongly, some people whose purpose is not pure, whose sense of duty is not sacred, and whose conscience is not infallible, will make their way into a spiritual world. But then, instead of behaving like a spiritual researcher, who can know from his own experience whether the things he sees are in accord with facts, these alleged researchers will report things according to their own lights. And also, since people can come only by degrees to apply their reasoning powers to understand what the spiritual researcher says, we can expect the charlatanry, humbug, and superstition will flourish preeminently in this realm. Nevertheless, human beings are in a different position today. To a certain extent, people can blame themselves if without wishing to use reason, they are led by a certain curiosity to have blind faith in those who pass themselves off as spiritual investigators. While people are still too comfort-loving to apply their reason and prefer blind faith to thinking for themselves, It is possible nowadays that instead of the ancient initiate who misused his power, we may have the modern charlatan, who imposes on people not the truth, but something he perhaps takes for truth. This can happen because today we are at the beginning of an evolutionary phase. There is nothing to which people should apply their ordinary common sense more vigorously than to the findings that spiritual science can offer. They can partly blame themselves if they are taken in by charlatanry and humbug, for these will continue to flourish on an extensive scale, as they have done already in our time. This too is something that must not be left out of consideration when we are speaking of the mission of spiritual science today. Those people, however, who listen to a spiritual researcher today, not in a willful way, with a kind of negative reasoning that casts immediate doubt on everything, but with a readiness to test everything in the light of sound reason, will get the sure feeling that spiritual science can bring comfort and hope in difficult times and supply answers to the puzzling questions of existence. People will come to feel that spiritual science can resolve big existential problems and puzzling matters of destiny and they will get to know what part of them is subject to birth and death and what is the eternal core of their being. 
In short, it will be possible for human beings, as we shall show in the coming lectures, provided they have goodwill and the determination to take on board and inwardly digest the communications of spiritual science, to realize with inner conviction that what Goethe said is true. Right from a youthful presentiment to the time when, as an old man, he gave these words to Faust to speak. Goethe was telling his public in every line he wrote, quote, The spirit world is ever open. Dead is thy heart, thy sense veil closely drawn. Up, scholar, let thy breast unwearied bathe in the roseate hues of dawn. In the dawn glow of the spirit. And that's the end of lecture one.